Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Book Kalua. I'm your host, Anthony. This week, Jan Doolittle Wilson is back for the first part of a two part conversation. I have her cover this Tyrion chapter and the next Tyrion chapter. So the part two won't drop for another month or so, but I thought that there were parallel themes that were running through both of the chapters, and I wanted to get her take on it. I always learn so much in my conversations with Jan. So I hope that you enjoy her insights as much as I did. Here is Dr. Jan Doolittle Wilson. So Jan, today we start our first of two parts covering Tyrion's, I guess Tyrion's sort of middle, most middle chapters in this book. Right. It's kind of his apex in some ways. I guess so. That's an interesting, I, w- I want to hear you talk more about that, but I felt like the I wanted to put these two chapters together because I think that there's some interesting gender discussions to be had, mm. and I thought I could use the help of the Wellspring Professor of History and Women's and Gender Studies. <laughs> uh, I will do my best. Um, in these two chapters, so we're looking at Tyrion 8 and Tyrion 9 in Clash. We have several representations of women in sort of narrative and rumor. Mm. And kind of covering a cornucopia of tropes. Mm. And so I'll just name the the ones that I came up with. All right. And, you know, notably, these are all from the perspective of of a male character and narrated, you know, through the male voice, male eyes, all that business. Um, Women are represented as political assets slash pawns. Oh yeah. Um, We have a mother and daughter relationship. We have a child bride. We have rumors of a femme fatale. And maybe a real femme fatale? Well, we can talk about that. Um, we have a damsel in distress, and we have a, a, a few damsel, damsels in distress in these two chapters. We have a sex worker slash love interest. 
we have the victim of a horrific rape. And so I guess trigger warning on that. Um, more, more so for the second part of our discussion. Right. Discussions of virginity as integral to virtue. Hmm. And uh, discussions of matchmaking and queen making. I mean, there's just a wide variety of directions we could go. And I'm wondering if you noted, like, were there any others that I missed? <laughs> that was very impressive, Anthony. <laughs> that was a really thorough list. No, I mean, those were all of the things. And you even added a couple of things that I thought, yeah, that's true. I, I'm writing this down as you were talking. There is so much in these two chapters. And I think that you're quite right to point out all of the gender politics and the tropes and the implications mm -hmm. and a lot of those old stereotypes, they're all coming into play in these two chapters. Right. And even in the ones before that I kind of quickly reviewed um, just in preparation for really examining in depth these two, right. um, yeah. especially this idea of just really women, using women as political pawns and using women as a way of spreading rumor and innuendo. Right. It's not that we don't hear the voice of women in these chapters. It's just that they're framed in a way that kind of almost showcases their powerlessness. Yes. I mean, and even like Cersei, who has really interesting agency throughout the course of these books, um, you know, she's in the room, right? She's in the, she's in the room of power brokers and yet none of her objections are heeded and mm -hmm. or not heated, but heated. Um, she's sort of cornered and forced to kind of relent. Mm -hmm. So even you know even the, the the rare woman in the room is almost I won't say silenced but pretty close to being silenced. It's I thought of that too. Um, when we hear Cersei, when we hear Sansa, very briefly yeah. um, in the next chapter. It's not only just these little glimpses, even Lady Tonda, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we, we get these little glimpses of women, but it's yeah. all from men's point of view. And I just kept thinking, unreliable narrator, how much of this can <laughs> yeah. we really trust their perspective on the women that they're talking about and, and doing it right in front of the women? They're having these very open, frank conversations about how can we manip manipulate and use these gender politics when women are actually in the room. So it's just very normal for them. Yeah, I, Cersei does contribute to this as well, right? The way that she the does. way that she talks about Marjorie's dubious virginity is sort of yes. part of the this entire conversation. So we could throw in another trope, I think, pitting women against each other. Right. Yeah. Right. That women will yeah. always work against each other, fight each other, work for their own interests, and you you definitely see that in the way that Cersei huh. is referring to Marjorie. Right. She really does come off as, I just kept thinking this as I was reading through, especially chapter 37, she comes off as kind of impulsive. Uh -huh. She says what she thinks in ways that the others do not. You know, they're all talking in this very coded language. They all kind of know what the other is saying, but it's always very cloaked, you know, yeah. in a certain kind of rhetoric. Cersei throughout, you know, really most of the first half of this book, she just lays her cards on the table. She'll get better at doing this later on. But one example I can think of is when, um, you know, Peter, of course, Littlefinger volunteers to be the one to go and negotiate with the Tyrells, mm, mm -hmm. which I hope we'll talk about because I yeah, think that's really interesting. Yeah. 
But, you know, Tyrion responds with his typical sarcasm. Um, I'm trying to look for exactly what he says. Um, but it's, it's kind of as typical. Here it is. It's page 402, uh, my copy. Um, so Littlefinger says, I will be the one who will go. Um, I will, you know, make the sacrifice. Yeah. And um, it's actually Varys who, who pipes up and says, you know, Joffrey is such a grateful sovereign. I'm certain you will have no cause to complain, my good, brave lord. <laughs> Just, you know, of course, we know exactly right. what he is saying there. Mm-hmm. But then the queen was more direct. What do you want, Peter? Right. So it's quite interesting that almost every time she speaks, even when she's trying to oh, I'm just thinking of Joffrey. I'm thinking of his happiness. You know, he's betrothed to Sansa. What about loyalty? We know that she has another agenda going on, but she doesn't cloak it quite as well, or even well at all. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, I want to talk about that. I want to sort of talk about the interior of Cersei that we have to surmise because we don't mm-hmm. see it. Yeah. You know, Martin almost has to make her more transparent. Yes. Because he because we don't get a POV chapter of her yet. And it's so great when we do. Yeah, eventually we will. Let me go ahead and read the synopsis. Okay. The small council is assembled again, minus Pycelle. They try, using Varys' rumors, to piece together the mystery of Renly's murder. Tyrion correctly surmises that Stannis is behind it, and quickly moves to match Joffrey to Marjorie Tyrell. Cersei objects, but is pressured by all others in the room and relents. Littlefinger offers to propose the marriage, but he will need to think over his future reward. As the meeting <laughs> concludes, Cersei asks about Tyrion's chain, thanks him for his help, and kisses him. Tyrion commands Bronn to look into what his sister is hatching. <laughs> uh, Jan Wilson, what do you want to talk about today? Just a quick observation. You know, the fact that she kissed him was probably much more obvious than if she had slapped him again. <laughs> right. <laughs> because she's never nice to Tyrion. So that was just... Her waving this huge red flag that I'm planning something because I'm actually being nice to you and kissing you on the cheek. When before, anytime he touched her, she was repulsed. So he immediately knows, aha, there's my signal. She's planning something. Yes, it's so clear. (laughs) It's like, like this is an, this is a Judas kiss, right? Even though Judas doesn't exist in this mythology or whatever, it's like, (laughs) 
how could you be any more obvious? Yes. Anyway, so, yeah, that's why I kind of said that there's a rumor of a femme fatale. You know, maybe a femme fatale killed Renly, right? Mm-hmm. But then the kiss makes me think, well, maybe we have actually have a legit femme fatale in the room. Yeah. Uh, maybe this is when Cersei has already sort of an indication that she's resolved to have mm. her brother murdered. Mm. Um, anyway, that I was going to yeah. suggest yeah. that later, but here we are. That's a so. really good, yeah, that's a really good um, kind of symbol, right? That, and there, I just was so struck and I'm veering away from Cersei for a little bit, but I was just really struck by all the foreshadowing, um, yeah. knowing what is going to happen. It, it's just heralded throughout, you know, these chapters, all of these little hints about, you know, things that Tyrion says about Joffrey, things that people say to Tyrion about Joffrey, mm. um, things that will happen during the battle. Um, it's it's just really brilliant how Martin drops these little these little nuggets, and then it kind of comes together, you know, by the end of the book. Um, but if you want to go back to Cersei, I have lots of thoughts about Cersei. You know, I think what you see happening in this chapter, she's pulling out anything she knows from the bag. So she tries being hostile. She tries being pleading. Uh, she she pulls out the mother card. I'm just a mother, you know, trying to protect my mm-hmm. son. And then you're right. At the end, she kind of switches and she tries kind of femme fatale. Um, I'm going to, mm. you know, kind of disguise my intentions through this kind of sweetness. So she is trying um, in her own way. And again, we have to remember this is from, you know, Tyrion's point of view. And he doesn't really think much of Cersei's plotting skills at all. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't really think she's much of a strategist. I think she'll prove him wrong later. Um, But she's certainly not displaying her best skills in the chapter. And I wanted to ask you, this is kind of what I was thinking about the conversation where, you know, Tyrion just immediately, this is something that we could do to our advantage. Let's turn this situation into something where we could gain new allies. And so he, of course, proposes that they wed Marjorie to Joffrey. Mm -hmm. And Cersei immediately objects Right. And if yeah. you look at how she objects, she first says, oh, he's already bound to Sansa. It's a loyalty thing. Yeah. Right. We've already made a contract. We can't break it. <laughs> so, again, she's trying anything she can. And right. in fact, you know, Tyrion even responds, oh, marriage contracts can be broken. Um, what advantage is there to marrying Joffrey to Sansa? There's really no political mm-hmm. advantage. Her father's the daughter of a dead. dead traitor. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Daughter of a dead traitor. There's really nothing advantageous about that um little fingers of course always thinking about money um the tyrells are wealthier than the starks Mm -hmm. and this i think is really the kicker when little finger says marjorie is said to be lovely and bettable Mm -hmm. besides i think that's what really gets cersei and if you look at just the language she is saying here Oh, my son doesn't care about that. He's too young. <laughs> He's made of finer stuff, <laughs> yeah, sure. which is really hilarious, right? Given that mm-hmm. he ordered, you know, Boros to rip off Sansa's gown, which Tyrion points out. But here's what I think is going on. If we remember the prophecy, right? Cersei's kind of whole oh, being I hadn't thought about this. is thinking about the prophecy, what Maggie the Frog said to her. Right. And one part of that prophecy is she will be replaced by a younger, more beautiful queen. And so with that in mind, I kind of read this again. And I thought, interesting. on first reading, it, maybe maybe she is just concerned with Joffrey, her baby boy. You know, mm-hmm. maybe she is concerned about 
the marriage contract, right? But what I think she's really thinking about is Marjorie will be much harder to control than Sansa. I thought the exact same thing. I didn't I didn't remember the Maggie the Frog. I think that's what she's thinking about. If she can keep Sansa in place, yeah. she knows she can control Sansa. She probably thinks she's more beautiful than Sansa. She knows that Joffrey doesn't like Sansa. So Sansa's not a threat. Sansa can't replace her. Yeah. And as long as she holds on to Sansa, maybe the prophecy won't come true. But the minute she hears Marjorie Tyrell, mm-hmm. that is a threat. Because she's beautiful. She's bettable. She is someone who Joffrey might be attracted to. So let's talk about that word bettable. Bettable. <laughs> First of all, it's <laughs> I'm surprised it's it's a word that's not used more. <laughs> yeah, it's great, isn't it? In this uh, context, she's bettable. <laughs> I all right, so I think that that means I I, I don't think that means sexy. I think that means that she's of age already, mm-hmm. where Sansa yeah. is not of age to consummate. Right. right. So when I view that, I think of like, well, that means that Joffrey doesn't have to wait any longer for the marriage to take place. And I mean, his wedding night could be next week instead of yeah. waiting however many months or years for Sansa. And get that pregnancy going too, right? right? Because that will secure the right. relationship in the kingdom. Right. But I'm really liking what you're saying about why Cersei would prefer Sansa. Mm. I think that Cersei rightly views her power, whatever little power she has, to be the sway of a mother over her son, and she's losing that rapidly, right? Yes. But she still has, like legit power over Sansa. Sansa's impressionable. She's young enough that she can be molded. She can kind of see a future where she can be in Sansa's ear and Sansa can be in Joffrey's ear or something like that. Right. And and better yet, Joffrey doesn't like her. I think that's a real sticking right. point too, that's that right. Joffrey doesn't really care for her. He's not in love with her. Right. And on top of all of this, and we don't know necessarily how much Cersei knows about Marjorie, but Marjorie's older and uh, Cersei will have less seemingly influence over Marjorie. Right. And she has money backing her, too. Right. I mean, the money, right? right? right I mean, right. Marjorie comes from a much wealthier family and the Tyrells are very much still in play. In fact, they're trying to make this alliance with the Tyrells. So she has to be very careful about how she treats Marjorie or they might lose that alliance. She uh-huh. doesn't have to worry about that with Sansa. Ned is dead. Yes. I mean, because I, I wrote down, like, why does Cersei, why is she advocating for Sansa? You know, and I think that there's got to be some other reason. I mean, the reason she gives is, like, there's no way that Joffrey will take the leavings of Renly or whatever. <laughs> he will never consent. Yes, yeah, certainly. She doesn't care. <laughs> she doesn't, no. She doesn't care about that. She cares about... She's a, you know what? She's she cares about, and she's legitimate in this concern losing political power. Mm-hmm. And if you look at what has happened over the last, let's say, fifty pages of this book, Tyrion has betrothed Marcella to some Dornish boy, and now in this chapter, he's proposing to wed Joffrey to. Someone and so, in a very short space of time, she's lost 
two of her children mm-hmm. to her brother's designs. Right. And I think she's thinking, this guy is leaving me nothing. She is losing everything that her identity is wrapped up in, I think. And I think most of all her children. Mm-hmm. And again, that goes back to the prophecy too, right? That she'll yeah. lose her children. Oh, interesting. Um, so that raises that whole nightmare. Um, yeah. Jamie's gone. Um, so that was a huge part of, of her support, her her love, right? So Jamie's gone, maybe dead. They don't know. And then Tyrion comes in and just kind of usurps her position, right? She says over and over, I am the one who should be making these decisions. I am the queen regent. I am the mother. Mm-hmm. And Tyrion basically just, again, swoops in. She's very surprised that he's been named Hand of the King. And he makes these kinds of decisions that push her further off the stage. Yeah. Right. I was also thinking about in the next chapter, going back to how she treats Sansa, I was kind of laughing where Tyrion makes this observation. Uh, Joffrey says something horrible to Sansa as they're riding back to the castle. Um, something like, you know, I'll have one of my soldiers give you a fatal blow. I mean, he says things like this to her all the time. And Tyrion speaking kind of in his own mind, Tyrion wonders why Cersei doesn't see how terrible Joffrey is, mm-hmm. especially how terrible he is to Sansa. And I kept thinking, she not only doesn't care, she that works to her advantage, the worse he is to Sansa, yeah. because that keeps Sansa cowed, right? That keeps her under control. And it adds to the antagonism in their relationship, which again works to Cersei's advantage. Cersei's just talking to the other people seemingly oblivious to what's happening to Sansa. The truth is, again, she not only doesn't care, but she probably is is pleased <laughs> that that's going on, despite you know what she says about that. At, at I guess the times. other thing I was thinking about with Cersei is that when she suggests that Marjorie has already been bedded by Renly, I don't think that that's an illegitimate political concern. I wonder if she's kind of voicing the common wisdom that might end up being a political problem. I agree. You know, I I definitely see that. Um, What if Marjorie's already pregnant? She marries Joffrey. There might be questions surrounding the legitimacy of their children. Right. I was just going to note that, historically speaking... Mothers have had like a legitimate voice in finding a match for their children. Right. Even mothers of kings have had Mm -hmm. a voice in this. I mean, even Tyrion says in this chapter, when they're kind of debating who's going to go make the proposal, Cersei says, well, it should be you. You, You're the hand of the king. You speak for the king. And he says, well, it, it should be the mother because the mother speaks for the match. Mm-hmm. And yet she really doesn't have a say here. And I'm wondering if this is because in the backroom dealings, some of these social norms are laid bare or whether it's just like in this particular case, Tyrion just has all the power. Maybe both, right? I think that Tyrion, even when he pretends to concede to Cersei, you know, when they're discussing... um the marriage itself and you know Cersei's objecting saying I'm the mother and what if Joffrey doesn't like Marjorie again she's just using any argument Mm. she can Tyrion makes a point of saying he will wed whom we tell him to wed Mm -hmm. and he he makes a point of saying we but what he really means is 
me. Mm -hmm. You know, I think he kind of just includes her as a way of, of, again, conceding. But I think it's pretty apparent that he has the power here. And he not only has the power, he has the backing of the men in the room who immediately jump onto the idea. Yes, of course, this Mm -hmm. is a great political idea. So they're just immediately thinking about how this will be something that will, again, be advantageous to the kingdom, to the crown, to the, you know, to the family, Um, something that will win the war. Well, Um, and it's that last part that's kind of, I think it's Peter that says something like, look, if we don't make this arrangement, your son might not live to see his wedding day. Mm -hmm. Because as soon as Stannis attacks the city is going to crumble. And so it could be like, they're legitimately thinking that this is our last real effort or our last real chance to create an alliance that means something. Right. Do you think that Cersei is also thinking about how she was basically sold off as a bride? It might be bringing up some of those memories. Yeah, that can't not be in her mind, right? Right. I mean, she was basically sold off to Robert because they knew that would be a good political match. Right. And yeah. and would solidify the place of the Lannisters in the kingdom. And I also think, like, whenever I read these chapters, I always see Tywin's shadow over them. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. I always think the reason why Tyrion has the power that he does over her is because she knows that whatever she does to Tyrion, you know, she'll have to answer to her father. Right. And Tyrion even uses that threat overtly at times if you don't like it you can go to father right yeah right but going back to your point about virginity i think that's really interesting because you know again they want to ensure paternity it's all about ensuring paternity and (laughs) if there's any chance that marjorie could already be pregnant then that's a problem right if they have this kind of hasty marriage marjorie's already pregnant then that legitimacy will always be questioned and it really reminded me this may be a little off topic but I remember I was just a kid, but when Diana married Charles, do you oh. remember there was this kind of this this rumor, which probably had a lot of basis, in fact, that she had to go see a gynecologist to prove her virginity? Oh. Do you remember those no, stories? No, I do. I do not remember these. And one thing I remember so clearly is her, I think it was her uncle, went before the press right when it was kind of announced that they were probably going to be engaged and vouched for her purity. Do you remember this? He, I don't. he basically this said is to the press, <laughs> it's so gross. And he said, I can vouch for you that Diana is pure, innocent. She's never had a lover, I think is what he said. Uh. And can you imagine <laughs> being Diana and hearing your sexuality and your your you know private business being told to the world and almost held up like a prized pig, right? That you are worthy because you are pure. <laughs> What's amazing to me is that the, that what I'm reading on these pages are sort of like fa medieval, right? Mm-hmm. But they absolutely represent modern politics. Yes. Oh, yes. Yuck. <laughs> it's it's disgusting, right? But again, they're they're speaking about this so frankly. Well, when you know, this idea of bettable. Right. When I when you first mentioned like the, the you know proof of paternity. The reason why I laughed was I thought, well, this is coming from Cersei, who's, yes. this is her great <laughs> sin, that none of these kids are Robert's children, right? So Right, right. Um, so I guess that means that she knows the problems associated more than most. 
Right. Isn't there also, maybe I'm thinking of the show, but when Peter goes and talks to Marjorie, you know, she makes that famous line about, I want to be the queen. Do they not have that conversation where she suggests to him that she and Renly never slept together? I, I think she kind of almost has to prove to Peter that don't worry about this. There is no problem in yeah, this regard I because our marriage was, was not sexual. I don't remember that, but I do, but it absolutely makes sense of, it, there's just been a couple hints about Renly's sexuality, mm-hmm. and it's enough for us to surmise that yes, he probably does have feelings for Loras, if not, you know, in, in a full relationship with Loras. Yeah, there's no, I guess there's no real indication that he wouldn't also be able to get Marjorie pregnant, right? All we know is that he's very close to Loras. It doesn't necessarily mean that he is, isn't also close to Marjorie. But it it absolutely is a crucial plot point if indeed Marjorie's virginity is at issue. Because Peter is the kind of guy who would know Renly's uh, comings and goings. And see, that's what surprises me about that conversation on the first page of this chapter you know, the people in this room, especially Varys and, and and Peter, they say what they think, but again, they do it in this very veiled way. Mm. They use sarcasm, they use innuendo. And so when Varys is talking about how Renly died, all of the rumors that are surrounding, you know, he mentions it could have been this woman, it could have been this woman he spurned. Right. I am so surprised that nobody came back with some sarcastic comment about a woman or, you know, just something kind of hinting at the idea of really that Renly was with a woman because you know that Varys has heard those rumors. You know that certainly Littlefinger has. And so it was kind of surprising to me that that was not injected in that conversation. They just kind of move on from right. that. Yeah. And I think one of them even suggests like there's a rumor that it's some woman that he took to bed yes. for his pleasure before for his pleasure before mm-hmm. the eve of the battle or something as, you know, I think would have been common practice. But of course, right. Renly is not your common king. Right. Um, that's that's a that's an interesting read. I wonder how many people actually. Know, I mean, Stannis seems to hint at, that he knows about his brother's uh, sexuality. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many people actually know this. In the show, it's very clear. It's like it's right. like the best cast secret in the kingdom or something. Right. Uh, and their relationship is very overt. <laughs> you know exactly what's going on. But you're right. In the book, it's more subtle. And I would have to do another read to kind of pick up on those places where you can tell that people are that they've either heard the rumors or they they have firsthand knowledge uh that yes you know something is going on here i honestly can't remember when that occurs in the book but i know it does at some point and i i guess the first indication i'm thinking of although it could have happened sooner is that conversation that peter has with marjorie which i can't remember if that's reproduced in the book but i know it is in the show so i would have to go back and reread that so I just to call out the passage you mentioned earlier, um, this is Varys talking. He says, my informers are not always as highly placed as we might like. When a mm-hmm. king dies, fancies sprout like mushrooms in the dark. A groom says that Renly was slain by a knight of his own rainbow guard. A washerwoman claims Stannis stole through the heart of his brother's army with a magic sword. Several men-at-arms believe a woman did the fell deed. 
but cannot agree on which woman. A maid that Renly had spurned, claims one. A camp follower, brought to serve his pleasure on the eve of battle, says a second. A third ventures that it might have been Lady Catelyn Stark. So I think that each... I'm always interested in the rumors of this story. I think there's a little bit of kernel truth. And now we know that Brienne did not do it. But you can kind of see, is is she a woman that Renly spurned? Hmm. Kind of. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, not, I wouldn't say spurned, but there's definitely unrequited love there, I think. Right. It's um, pretty obvious to those who see how she right. interacts with Renly. A member of the Rainbow Guard? Yes, it was. Um, but that, you know, it's it's just very interesting to me how these things kind of sprout up and sort of take form in different shapes. And you're right about the nugget of truth. I mean, the washerwoman comes the closest, right? Mm-hmm. She has kind of this supernatural, which made me think, we know how cunning and clever and, and you know, sneaky Varys is. One wonders if Varys actually knows what happened. And so he is kind of throwing a little bit of the truth in to the mix of these these rumors and and mm. some some more kind of outstanding things as a way of kind of burying the truth, which he might already know. That's interesting. It's not too far fetched to think he might actually have some spies in Renly's Rainbow Guard or his. Yeah, you know, and if he comes out and say it was a shadow in the shape of Stannis Baratheon, I mean, he's <laughs> going to lose all credibility, right? So right, because they are not at all convinced at this point, right? They immediately uh-huh. go for what is most logical. It it doesn't even occur to them. Oh, this crazy washerwoman, you know. Of course, the common people. Uh, believe in you know whites and fairies and these right. things that they've always laughed at, but actually that is much closer to the truth. Something that they can't see. Yeah, and we can add to our list of you know female tropes mm. the yeah. the fancies of an unreliable and maybe hysterical woman that you can't really trust. <laughs> right, right. The washerwoman under the radar. <laughs> right, the washerwoman who has the right of it probably. Mm-hmm. is kind of put into this category of like, eh, this is just old wives' tales. And might have even seen it happen. You know, these these sorts of people are so overlooked. Right, they're in the room, You don't. they're invisible. Yeah, it's like you don't even know that they're there, and they see so much. And they often do have the truth of how things happen, but nobody listens to them. You know, at least those in the, in the mm. higher echelons, because why would you listen to a washerwoman right she doesn't know what she and she's a woman right she's not only a washer she's a woman so she doesn't really have any standing with them but those are the people who know what they're talking about and in fact those are the people Varys hires as spies because he knows they know what they're talking about so then Tyrion what Tyrion decides is he kind of puts an end to the conversation um you know Cersei kind of starts to threaten Varys like if you don't give us better information (laughs) you're going to wind up you know, out of the council or something. And Tyrion puts an end to this and says that it's probably Stannis because he's got the most to gain. But I think he is uh, legitimately concerned that he was counting on Renly and Stannis depleting each other's forces. Mm-hmm. And certainly yes. whatever happens, Stannis is definitely the one who's gained from this little interaction. Which in- does end up working for them. Because then they can appeal to Loras. They can appeal to the Tyrells who loved Renly but hate Stannis. 
<laughs> so he has that great line, but who do they hate more? Do they hate Stannis more or us more? <laughs> Maybe we can convince them to hate us a little bit less than they hate yes, Stannis. That's right. All right. So and that's why they need Marjorie. <laughs> so we've been talking a lot about uh, male sexuality um, so far. There is this little bit in this chapter where Tyrion suggests to Braun that we should take Joffrey to Shatayas mm-hmm. uh, because he's 13 and, you know, maybe maybe this is a way to make him like Tyrion better mm-hmm. to kind of, you know, feed his budding sexuality and, and however, you know, however they can figure out how to do it. But they feel like they need to get him away from the hound in order to make that happen. And which is interesting, isn't it? Yeah. And then all right, so th- that's interesting to me. And then I thought why why wouldn't they include the hound in this or uh-huh. wh- why you know, is the hound the kind of guy who's just like doesn't want anyone to have pleasure because he he doesn't <laughs> I don't know I don't know why why the hound would be a, a roadblock here. Right. I mean, presumably they could just say, this is our plan. Make sure you stand outside the door at the brothel. (laughs) Right. Right. I mean, I don't, why all of the uh, subterfuge when it comes to the hound? I didn't quite understand that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now I've had a bit of headcanon with my sister and I've kind of voiced this to her sometimes and she doesn't want to engage, but (laughs) (laughs) I thought, I, I think that the hound's a virgin. I think that he's, I, I, I sort of, I can't, I can't, I don't know why I think this, but I just think, I think he's like so angry and maybe he's insecure about it, the way he looks and he just, we never see him at, at the brothels and he doesn't really, it doesn't seem like he has that kind of appetite in, in mm. on these pages. And yet Vera says that the hound does indeed, he says, drinks, whores, and gambles. And so it kind of exploded my little theory. I'm going to have to call my sister and apologize. Well, I mean, it, but I mean, that's interesting. As soon as you said that, I thought maybe, maybe that is something. Just because he visits the brothel doesn't necessarily mean, yeah. right, that he's, he's engaging in actual sexual activity, although that's the presumption. Um, maybe that's, really that, that's the image that he wants to give off because it, it's, it would seem odd right. for a man like him not to be at a brothel. And he comes off as, we know that the hound comes off as this very fierce killing machine, mm-hmm. but look at how tenderly he treats Sansa. Mm-hmm. That's true. Right? Something he doesn't really want anyone to know. Um, in fact, when he kind of has that great conversation with Sansa and tells her what happened to him when he got burned, he really exposes himself and then quickly says, if you tell anyone, I will kill you. <laughs> <laughs> right, of course. Because the facade has to remain in place. Yeah, he's... So I don't know. I think, I think that's really intriguing. There's something there. For someone who doesn't, you know, who's someone who kind of hates the mythology around knights, he mm-hmm. certainly curates his own persona. <laughs> he is the most knightly of all of them. Right. If you think about what happens in the next chapter we're going to talk about. That's right. He is the only one who acts the way a knight should, and yet he is the only one who refuses to be called knight. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Now, uh, one of the things that Peter has to negotiate when he goes out to make the proposal is that 
he wants to bring 500 men with him. And then, <laughs> oh, Peter, T- Tyrion says, I'll give you 100. <laughs> and they kind of settle on 340 or something. Uh, you know, the, and mm-hmm. he, he feels like, number one, he doesn't want to be waylaid. And number two, he wants enough knights to be in his tail so that he looks the part. Right, mm-hmm. he he wants the Tyrells to take him seriously, and, and unless he has a huge uh, knightly tail behind him, he kind of looks low rent, I guess. Right, right. Uh, I thought that was sort of an interesting negotiation. It's very interesting. I'm picturing one man surrounded by 340, you know, soldiers and knights, uh, which seems excessive. Um, But I think you're right. It it is a show of power, right? If they're to have any kind of negotiating um, power with the Tyrells, who are a very wealthy, Uh strong family, they have to show this kind of force. But we also know, based on what happens later, that he has an agenda. (laughs) It's not just, I just want to make sure that I make a good bargain. We know that Peter also wants his own so household, right. he wants his own kind of power, and I think he's thinking if these soldiers come with me, maybe I can hold on to some of them um, when I kind of make my move. Yeah, and I think that that's maybe an underdiscussed uh, virtue of the knights in this story. That if you have a knight that looks the part, it can increase your political capital. Mm-hmm. I think there, there's you know, there's there's a sense in which. Renly really was hoping for Selmy to come to his side because that would help legitimize his claim. Yeah. But just the sheer quantity of knights, actually, Peter thinks will say something about him politically. So in addition to kind of like knights are heroic, knights are soldiers, knights do the right thing, uh, there's also a value in just having that presence there to give you the air of royalty. And that's, I think, especially important for Peter because of his origin, right? Because of how he grew up. He's called Littlefinger. And you can just imagine how that plays into his ego, his sense of himself, who he wants to be. This, to me, means royalty, something I've never really had or been entitled to. Mm. So look at me now, traveling with 340 members of the Royal Guard, you can imagine um, what that does for his sense of yeah. his own importance. A guy that was once cut neck to navel by a, a fierce warrior and a great, you know, would-be lord. Yeah. Now he's got 20 knights at his disposal, right? Exactly. Yeah, under his command. And something else you said, Anthony, which I think we can explore much more in the next chapter, is, again, this, you know, very shiny, gilded surface, rotten to the core. Yeah. And we see that so much throughout, you know, Martin's writing. But mm-hmm. I just kept thinking again, the hound who has this horribly scarred, ferocious outward appearance is actually good on the inside. And yet you look at these other knights, they have all of the, the pretense of being a knight. They have all the shiny clothing and the cloaks and, you know, they, they know what to say. Um, they're called sir, but they're cowardly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they think of themselves. Um, they act terribly uh, when it when a real emergency arises. They beat women. They are not chivalrous. Yeah. You know, do you remember we talked about Sansa earlier in a previous pod where 
she had this very romantic idea of what a knight should be. And that's completely shattered when she comes into close proximity to these knights who beat her on, on, you know, Joffrey's command. So it's very disillusioning. The closer you get, they realize how rotten it really is. And the way they speak about women, you know, how can we manipulate this woman to our political advantage? Mm -hmm. They spread the terrible rumor about Stannis's daughter earlier in the book, right? That his wife slept with the the fool of the court and that's how they got Shireen. I mean, they, they have no qualms at all about using women, their reputation, their sexuality, their marriageability, their bedability. Right. <laughs> if it will serve an advantage to either them or the kingdom. Right. I'm just going to say that the last, the last POV chapter we've had of Sansa, her interior voice says the hounds the hound hates knights and so do i (laughs) so she's almost completely lost faith in that old chivalry that she used to have right yeah she's seen what they do and how they really act in the real world and of course the hound is just putting voice to something that she's seen with her own eyes yeah. I mean, we've talked about how she just starts getting so much more um, aware of not only that, but not trusting. And that's a real trait of those who make their way to the top. You know, right? never trust. And even when Tyrion shows a kindness to her, mm-hmm. she still doesn't trust it at first. He has an agenda. The queen spoke nicely to me as well at one point. Um, so you really kind of see that mistrust building up in her throughout this for good or ill but it certainly is a a layer of protection that she has around Mm -hmm. her now yeah we learn in this chapter that joffrey is 13 which we knew before but here's something that i didn't know before that he'll come of age in three years Mm, that's right so in martin's world adulthood at least for men begins at age 16 yeah and I, I've always kind of been curious about this because I, 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 I'm trying to parse out, like, how are people measuring childhood and adulthood in these, mm-hmm. uh, in these pages? And in this, according to this chapter, it's, it's the age of 16. This is sort of when Joffrey can take the throne. Yeah. For men, it seems to be kind of arbitrary. Right. This is an age we have chosen. But for women, it's biological. Right. Right. It's after yeah. they menstruate. Yeah. Mother nature they can will determine, produce babies. Right? Yeah. It's it's very much tied to their reproductive capacity, which is how women have always been defined throughout history through their bodies. Right. Their ability to have children, yeah. how they menstruate. So that part's not surprising. But, you know, again, this idea of 16 is the age we have chosen where men because there really is no kind of biological marker for men in the same way there is for women. Mm-hmm. Not anything that distinct anyway. Yeah. I mean, and this actually does make a little bit of sense of a character we'll meet in the next chapter, but I'll save that for uh, our next conversation. Okay. Um, notable introductions in this chapter. Um, well, we are introduced to Joffrey's potential betrothal to Marjorie for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're introduced to the, you know, the, the age of adulthood for men uh, in this mm-hmm. chapter. Uh, we learn that um, both Eamon Coy and Robar Royce 
were killed by Loras in his murderous rage. Yeah, that's right. Um, and you know, we in that Catelyn chapter where she witnesses the the shadow monster. Um, she sees that those two men are trying, both trying to kill Brienne, and she's yeah. able to kind of fend them off. Actually, both women sort of take a part in fending them off, but then we learn in this chapter that when Loras comes in, sees the dead body of Renly, he kills these two knights. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, so also notable departures, both those Can I guys. just say one thing about that, Anthony? Yeah. Not that we have to dwell on this. I think it's kind of a minor point, but do you think, I'm of two minds, do you think Loras killed the knights because he thought they were responsible or because they failed to protect. That's interesting. I didn't think of either of those. I was thinking like, this is a lover's rage. Mm-hmm. That was my first thought. But then I thought, I wonder if there's more to it. I, at first I thought maybe he thought they were responsible. That seems somewhat unlikely. He might've killed them because how dare you not protect mm. the king? Mm. That was your one job. And you yeah. didn't protect him. No, that ma- that's pretty plausible. I guess I was, I immediately thought, well, this this guy was in love with Renly, and so he's right. lost his mind. And 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 he, I mean, the guy is amazing with the sword, and in that moment, very very violent. That that's how I yeah, read I, it. But and it could be that. It, it, yeah, it could be. In, it could be multiple things, right? It could be that you you failed, and so you you deserve to die. I guess. Um, hmm. Departures again. Baelish departs for Highgarden, <laughs> and show differences. The suggestion of bringing Joffrey to a brothel is brought out in a very troubling way in the show. I remember this. Yes. Um, in the show, uh, Rosalind who. Uh, initially was a sex worker up in Winterfell, I guess moved around on the chessboard by both Varys and Baelish, right? Right. And then eventually she's killed by Joffrey. Right. And, With the crossbow, I believe. Yes. Yeah. So, and then, okay, so that was, I, I felt like a really unnecessary image yes. on the screen. But I, I think that it's sort of inspired by... Just the su- the suggestion made in this chapter, right? No, I agree. I I find a lot of that aspect of the show troubling, as I think many people do. Um, you know, again, kind of using women's bodies in service of driving the plot, mm-hmm. right? That was unnecessary, but they have to show that kind of violence to Roz as a way of just emphasizing something we already know about Joffrey, exactly. how horrible he is. Exactly, I agree. I think it was unnecessary um, and and gratuitous. Um, yeah, it's not like anyone was cheering for Joffrey at that point. Exactly, exactly. That, there was no plot movement at all with that. Um, it didn't tell us anything we didn't already know. And it's just horrific to see that image uh, mm-hmm. of a woman on screen like that. Well, and to, to bring it, I mean, of lesser concern is the class problem. This is a narrative with so few commoners represented. Right. And I'm always interested to hear what, uh, you know, a a quote unquote lowborn person like Asha or, um, you know, someone who sort of came up through the ranks like Davos. I'm always curious to see their perspective 
And Which is why the next chapter is so intriguing, <laughs> because we do get more of a glimpse, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> a very violent glimpse, but we do get the people that's, finally. That's right. So I, I feel like deleting her from the story was a problem for me, because I, I want more of those characters. I mean, this is part of my issue with House of the Dragon. I kind of need the downstairs perspective on right. some of these things, that you know, the kinds of voices that don't make it into the history books. And almost all of those women are killed, <laughs> at least yeah. you know, in the book, but also the show in, mm-hmm. in usually pretty violent ways. I'm thinking of um, Ygritte, right? right? Um, yeah. She would be in that category, I think. Um, Shay? So the, Shay, certainly. Another very, very horrific killing, which I don't know if we want to talk about that, but that's troubling yeah. right, as well, what happens to Shay. Yeah. Um, and Shay is all over the place in this book, too. Um, but she doesn't have a point of view chapter, so we never really understand from her perspective. Well, talk about an unreliable narrator. Tyrion mm-hmm. is just... He's like... either I think he's just completely oblivious to his his true relationship with this woman. You know, he, he, thinks, he thinks that they're in love and that he's, you know, she's a damsel in distress and... Uh, it's, it's so complicated that relationship because I think he knows, right? I mean, he does say several times, "Oh, you're being a fool, Tyrion." Uh-huh. You know, she doesn't love you; she just loves the coin you give her. But he constantly pushes that away. He can't because he yeah, so he, desperately right. doesn't want to believe it. He's, he's so almost desperate. willfully ignorant. He is, and that becomes his big flaw. <laughs> <laughs> At one point, he actually says something like. Yeah, maybe, you know, I'm an ugly man, but maybe Shay doesn't recognize ugly, ugliness or something something absurd like that. And I think, you know, we've talked about this, but I, I do think that's Tyrion's Achilles heel. The idea that he so desperately wants to be loved mm-hmm. and can't find it anywhere, mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's maybe the, the central theme for Tyrion's arc throughout this entire book. This is kind of why I called these two chapters kind of the apex, because... Right before this, there's that scene where he's in bed with Shay. Mm-hmm. And this plays into what you were saying, Anthony, where he's totally content. I've just stuck it to Lancel. Yeah. <laughs> I'm using him now for my own power. Uh-huh. I've got Cersei where I want her to be. I've got Shay in my bed. I'm good at this. Life is great. Yeah. And so he goes world, into these right? two chapters like, I am, wow. Right? I may not be the king, but I'm pulling the strings. And then we get to that next chapter and things begin to unravel. And I think that's why when he is told, is it, is it Jocelyn, Jocelyn, the, the knight yeah. who says to Tyrion, they hate you most of all. Yes. That just wounds him like nothing else. The other thing about this is that in the show, Peter arrives at Renly's camp before Renly's killed. That's right. And I That's right. He is there when it happens. Because I mean, he brings in the show he brings Ned's bones to to Cat. That's right. And that's why he's able to have that conversation with Marjorie mm-hmm. so quickly mm-hmm. because he is right there when all of the the tumult is happening after Renly is killed. And it's really Peter who kind of is the first one to recognize you know the political advantage here. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a choice. That's interesting. Yeah, and I do think that yeah, we we missed this entire conversation because I, I think Peter's kind of like doing this on his own accord. Mm-hmm. 
And I do like the idea of putting Catelyn and Baelish in the same tent for a little bit. How dare you? You may have heard false reports. You betrayed Ned. Betrayed? I wanted him to serve as protector of the realm. I begged him to seize the moment. I trusted you. My husband trusted you. And you repaid our faith with treachery. Oh, my lady. Get out! Cat, I... I've loved you since I was a boy. It seems to me that fate has given us this chance to... You've lost your mind! Get out! Do you want to see your girls again? Sansa, more beautiful than ever. And Arya, just as wild as ever. You have Arya too? Both girls are healthy and safe for now. But you know the Queen and you know Joffrey. I fear for their longevity if they remain in the capital. I mean, that that relationship is the springboard for so much of what goes wrong in this story. Right. Like, if Peter Baelish was not jilted by Cat, <laughs> how much of the bloodshed could have been avoided? Do you think that, and you, and you definitely see a lot of hints of it, not even just hints, Tyrion even acknowledges how dangerous Peter is. I think his, his rationale, and I can't send Cersei off. I don't want to go off. Mm-hmm. I've got to keep Cersei right by my side because she's the most dangerous. Hmm. And yet he sends Peter off. Do you think he's really underestimating the damage Peter can do when he's out there? He knows that he, I think he knows that it's troubling. To, it, it's troublesome to have Baelish out of sight, he said. I don't want him out of my sight, but he kind mm-hmm. of clearly neither Tyrion nor Cersei want to go on this mm-hmm. maybe fatal mission. Yeah. Uh, but so here we have the one member of the small council who's actually volunteering it. And it makes sense to send him and that he knows it's a, it, this is going to be a problem. Um, but I feel like Tyrion's thinking, we need this marriage. If we don't get this marriage, <laughs> we are toast. So he's willing to take right. the risk. It just seems like in previous chapters, too, he, he's almost constantly surprised that Peter's as good as he is, mm-hmm. right? Where Peter will say, oh, wow, you're a really good liar. <laughs> so he, he's, it seems like he's a little slow to catch on. Yes, he's a good liar. Yes, he will lie to your face. Yes, it's all about what can I do to gain yeah. power. Yeah. Um, and so I, I agree with you. I think there's some trepidation on Tyrion's part when he thinks, oh, I'm sending Peter out there with all of these soldiers. Um but I'm not quite sure he gets the full import of what he's doing in kind of unleashing, you know, Baelish out into the world like that. Yeah. All right, Jan. Um, until next time. All right. Thanks, Anthony. Always fun to talk about these books yeah, with you. Me too.